Welcome to the Own Your Time podcast. Today we have Alex and Michael on the show from Madison 1031. We're going to be getting into 1031 exchanges, uh, kind of getting into the minutia. So it's going to be a fun one. Um, but welcome to the show, guys. Thanks, Kyle. And thanks for having us on. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Thanks, my friend. Awesome. So before we get started into 1031s, can you guys just give us a little bit of your backstories, how you got to where you are, and then also the backstory of Madison 1031 exchanges? Sure, I guess I'll start. Um, so yeah, my name is Mike Brady. I'm a practicing real estate attorney by training. I've practiced over 26 years doing predominantly corporate transactions and uh, commercial and residential real estate transactions. I call it uh, the dry work. The wet work is uh, is getting into litigation and going to court. I try to stay out of court. I've gone enough to realize I don't particularly care for it. Uh, and so I transitioned into doing 1031 exchanges as a qualified intermediary in 2005 after having done many exchanges for clients as an attorney. And I joined a company called Asset Preservation, which uh, was one of the larger companies at the time doing exchanges, ran the East Coast for them uh, from 2005 to about all the way up to 2007, where it was kind of the heyday and then down through the downturn in 2008. I uh, left in 2012 to join another company and start up a QI division for them doing 1031 exchanges. And I joined Madison about two years ago to head up sales and marketing, as well as structuring some of the more complex transactions for our clients um, as they go through uh, their machinations and some of the stuff we're going to talk about today. Well, my, my background is quite different. My background is from a small business owner's perspective. I ran one of the largest catering companies in, in Silicon Valley. We're one of the largest sushi providers, actually, uh, in Silicon Valley. And they're serving Facebook, Google, Airbnb, among others. And also had a very strong social mission as well, where we employ people from prisons. So I spent, I spent a lot of time visiting prisons, maximum security prisons, and hiring from that community. Um, and the, one of the things, as a small business owner, that I understood was that in order to be able to create wealth and value, it's about creating assets, right? And capital, right? Not just going into a W-9, right? not living the, up from a W-9. So when I had an opportunity, I sold my business and I was able to, uh, when I was looking for the next challenge, Mass and 1031 came around. And I think the idea of being able to work with some of the wealthiest investors in the country and being able to create multi-generational wealth is very exciting. So through their process, also I get to understand kind of the secrets of how wealthy individuals build for themselves and their future. So I, I get to work side by side with Michael and the whole team, uh, which is very exciting. And I also get to talk to guys like Kyle and learn from you guys. So thank you so much for having us. Yeah, very cool. So do you guys want to touch a little bit on what Madison 1031 is? Yeah, sure. So we're part of actually a much larger company. Um, we're part of Madison Commercial Real Estate Services, which is four related companies that handle many aspects of, of real estate transactions. So we have Madison Title is the largest of our companies, and we provide title insurance nationwide, uh, all 50 states. Uh, predominantly in the commercial space, we do handle in some states like New York, some residential transactions, but really we're, we're handling the bigger deals. You know, we're handling the skyscrapers in Manhattan, you know, some of the bigger corporate centers out West, uh, you know, that's, that's where Madison Title kind of makes its home. And then they're one of the largest uh, privately owned uh, title agencies in the country. Um, then we have Madison uh, Specs, which does cost segregation services. Uh, you may know Yona Weiss as, as Mr. LinkedIn or uh, the king of cost seg. Um, 
you know, he, he's part of our Madison Specs team, and they specialize in helping people reduce their taxable income from real property by accelerating the depreciation by reclassifying certain of the assets. Uh, we also have Madison uh, 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 Lease Pro Due Diligence, which uh, does lease abstracting and financial due diligence on real estate investments to help investors, uh, you know, make decisions in acquiring a property as well as kind of analyzing what they have. And of course, Alex and I are from Madison uh, Exchange, also known as Madison 1031, which is a national qualified intermediary for 1031 exchanges. And uh, we handle, you know, several thousand transactions each year. We've helped our clients save over several times over a billion dollars of taxes uh, by doing a 1031 exchange and trading from one property to another. That's amazing. So let's get into the 1031 basics. So number one, what is a 1031 exchange? 1031 exchange is a tax code that's been around for over a hundred years. And essentially the 1031 exchange is the government's way of encouraging reinvestment in the real estate market. You see, every time you invest your money uh, in a property, you have the silent partner and you may not know that he's your partner, but he definitely is. So she is, that's the government. Everything else, every single step of the way, he or she is alongside you. And when you sell a property and it is appreciating the value at that time, your, prop, your partner comes along and says, it's time to pay the capital gains tax. And that depending on the state where you're at, it might be up to 30% or even more. So the government says, look, you've done so well in investments that I want to encourage you to keep that money and reinvest it back in the market. So using this, this tool called the 1031 exchange where a qualified intermediary is essentially able to exchange, right? Able to reinvest the, pro the proceeds of one property that you've sold into a new investment within a certain very limited time frame. So that's what 1031 does. Essentially what it allows you is to defer capital gains taxes and, and leverage that money to purchase new property. Is there anything you'd like to add to that, Michael? Uh, yeah, no, Alex pretty much nailed it. I mean, essentially the way it works is it's a swap of one property for another, right? So every exchange that we're going to talk about today is really two parties trading deeds. And they created the 1031, as Alex said, almost 100 years ago in the 1920s um, to allow two people who are trading deeds where there's no cash changing hands to avoid paying taxes because there's no cash available in that transaction to pay the taxes. Okay, so it's very cumbersome to have, you know, uh, well, I should say it's very unusual for two parties to like each other's property enough to trade them. And so they created a third party structure using what we are qualified intermediary to essentially exchange with the taxpayer. So for tax purposes, they give us their property, we sell it, take the money, go buy property from somebody else and then give them a property back in exchange for the one they gave us. So it's a swap for tax purposes, okay? So it's a little less cumbersome than that. We don't have to actually take title to the property. You know, that would involve four sets of transfer taxes, deed recordings, you know, uh, mortgages potentially, title insurance, which Madison Title would love, you know, having four title policies and two transactions would be a home run. Uh, but they said that's not necessary. It's, it's sufficient if we take assignment to both contracts and the money flows through us because by keeping the money out of the taxpayer's hands, they're receiving a property for a property for tax purposes. Amazing. So Alex, you briefly touched on a time specification. So what is the time limit on a 1031 exchange? Yeah, absolutely. So essentially there are two really important moments where you got to remember when it comes to 1031 exchanges and uh, they are, 
uh, really critical times, which is 45 days and 180 days. So let's go into each one of these. So remember 45 days, 180 days. Now, of course, Corona, we're going to touch upon that a little bit. Sometimes there are moments beyond our control, natural disasters, which may come in a, in a, in the form of very small type of germs, but those might move the timeline, but typically it's 45 days, 180 days. So 45 days are the following. From the moment that you close the deal, you have 45 days to identify the property that you want to exchange into, right? So you have a bit, an ability to typically identify three properties that you want to exchange the proceeds of your sale into. So those are 45 days to identify those. So I sold the property in Wyoming, right? Uh, it's a, uh, a, a, a multifamily uh, residential building. I can do a like kind of exchange for a commercial property in New York. I can identify three of any value, right? In, a, in exchange for the proceeds. Now, if I want to identify more than that, there's going to be special rules that are going to apply. I can touch upon them. But that's a 45-day rule that you want to make sure that you identify that. Now, keep in mind, just before you could do any of these things, you have to involve the QI before the closing, right? So you cannot, we have this calls all the time. I, may, I just finished my closing. I've closed the deal. I've received, as soon as you receive the cash in hand, it's no longer a swap, right? So you want to make sure that the QI receives the proceeds. So the QI has to be involved right away in the beginning of the, of the closing. So that's the first step, 45 days. The 180 days is the time you have from the time of sale to be able to close the transaction. Most people have a more challenging time within the 45 day period, but at times 180 days is again a limitation of the 180th day. You have to make sure that you close the transaction down. Now again, this is not, you know, if, if you have a birthday party you have to go to, if it's Christmas, Thanksgiving, it maybe it's your wedding day, very special, very special, that cannot defer that timeline. So 45 days and 180 days. Identification period of 45 days and closing period of 180 days. Mike? Yeah, the amazing thing to me also, as Alex mentioned, is there's so many people that decide they're going on extended vacations right after they close on their relinquished property. You know, and they're not going to be back till day 43. You know, as Alex said, it's calendar days, you got to get it done. So yeah, typically you have up to three, you can identify up to three properties in the 45 days and you can buy any of those three in a hundred total of 180 days. Uh, if you went beyond three, you know, if you were going to buy a bunch of small properties, so you're taking your big asset and you're going to diversify into several smaller ones, you could identify four or more properties provided the value of those properties together does not exceed double the value of the price that or price that you sold your property. So if you sold for a million dollars, you can identify six properties, but no more than $2 million total of property. Okay. There's a 95% rule, which is really designed for people who are buying portfolios of property. That says you can exceed that 200% rule provided you buy 95% of the value of what you identify, which means that basically it's an all or nothing transaction. Um, I just want to touch on the COVID uh, deadlines because I think that's kind of important to your listeners. Um, <clears throat> obviously, the pandemic has created challenges for the real estate industry as well as the entire world. Um, in recognition of that, the IRS has done a couple of things to help taxpayers. They extended the tax filing deadlines to July 15th, uh, extended the time to pay your taxes for 2019 until July 15th. And also, we as an industry had lobbied them to help out 1031 investors also because you know, it's very difficult to look at properties when you can't 
see them in person, right? I, I have a son right now who's trying to lease a property, just got a job in New Jersey. And he's, he's looking at videos and he has no idea what's going on, you know, so he can't walk in. So it's very tough to do anything in real estate right now. So we lobbied the IRS. Um, in the past, they have given extensions to 1031 investors who in the middle of their exchange suffered a natural disaster. Okay, so if I was somebody who was in um, the South Shore, I live on Long Island, and the people on the South Shore of Long Island, when Superstorm Sandy hit, were wiped out. And the flooding, you know, the floodwaters were, you know, ridiculous. And towns in Lindenhurst and some of the other towns locally here, you know, were basically underwater. So if you had started an exchange before Superstorm Sandy, you typically got an extension of 120 days on whatever your deadlines were. Okay. We've seen the same thing for wildfires out West, right? That campfire that was out West, you know, there were extensions given for that. We saw, you know, um, blizzards in Buffalo, uh, you know, basically everything. If it was a federally declared natural disaster, you were typically given some time. You had to be an affected taxpayer though, under the regulations, which means that you had to either, you know, reside in the area that was impacted by the natural disaster or somebody else involved in the exchange was in that area or you're, the property you identified was destroyed in the natural disaster. This is so different. The pandemic is so different, right? So the IRS came out and they did not do exactly what we expected. They said, basically, if your deadline is between April 1st and July 15th of 2020, your deadline is, whether it's 45 or 180 days, your deadline is extended until July 15th of 2020. Okay, so that was great. If your deadline was August or April 1st, you got a big extension, right? You got almost three months of an extension. If your deadline is July 14th, it doesn't really help you that much, right? So, you know, it, it's a little bit, it, it was welcome relief, certainly, but it didn't help as many people as it could. Plus, you know, this pandemic has been here, let's generously say it, it came in February, okay? People think it may be starting November, December, you know, uh, but let's say it came in, you know, let's say really the impact was in February. If your deadline was March 1st, under this guidelines from the IRS, you're out of luck, right? You didn't get an extension. And so we think we've actually lobbied for further relief from the IRS on behalf of taxpayers in that situation. Also for the people who, again, you know, the pandemics where I am in New York, you know, we're still pretty much on lockdown on the, in the downstate area. So we've asked for further extensions beyond July 15th also. And under the IRS's own regulations, it seems that it's either the later of July 15th or 120 days. It's weird the way they worded it. So we don't know that that applies, but we think there's an argument to be said, to be made that you might be entitled to the 120 days if it's later. Um, but we've asked the IRS for further guidance. We're part of the Federation of Exchange Accommodators. Uh, myself and my colleague, David Medinitz are on the Government Affairs Committee for that group. So we've lobbied. And the American Bar Association has also lobbied for further relief. So the answer is, yes, there's some re relief, but stay tuned. There may be more. Okay, great. When do you think that we could hear any updates on that kind of extension? I would hope two weeks ago, but it's, uh, we're hoping within the next couple of weeks, you know, uh, while it still makes a difference because we do have people who have their money kind of just hanging out there and they don't know what their, what their remedies are. Uh, so hopefully they'll act somewhat quickly. The PPP uh, loans and all that stuff is kind of throwing them behind the eight ball uh, as far as getting stuff done.
Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, well, that's good to hear. And uh, definitely be keeping in contact to yeah. see if we can get any of that. Um, so what happens if you do a 1031, but there's some leftover money in the form of a boot? What can you do about that? And uh, yeah, what are some of the strategies? Okay, so, so let's just define boot, right? I know right now the sports season is kind of closed, so there might be some confusion around it. But boot is essentially a term that whatever money is not reinvested in the 1031 exchange is taxable. Right? So essentially, you'd have to pay capital gains tax on that money. So basically, uh, that would be what's considered boot. So the question is, if I have a million dollar uh, property that I've sold, I have to reinvest all a million dollars, not just the capital gains, right? I have to invest all a million dollars and I have $200,000. Well, that's going to be considered boot. And then I have to basically have to pay capital gains tax on that, right? So we, we want to do everything that we can in a, in a 1031 exchange to avoid boot. And there's several different strategies that Mike can go into that, that we could set up in order to last minute, if you cannot use up all of the exchange proceeds, then you can reinvest the, the boot in place. So you will have to avoid the capital gains. Yeah, you know, and the one thing I think you also have to be careful of, it's not just cash boot, you can also have what we call mortgage boot, right? So you may reduce the amount of debt between what you had on your relinquished property and what you incur on your replacement property. And that also could be subject to taxation, right? So generally you wanna buy properties equal or greater in value to what you sold and spend all the proceeds to fully defer the taxes, which means the debt will usually take care of itself. So you gotta be careful. We always recommend talk to your accountant before you do an exchange to make sure the numbers make sense. But if you are in that situation- Mike, where you can sold, you explain that one more time? Just, just dumb that down for me. Yeah, so buy for equal or greater value and spend all the proceeds from the sale, right? So if you sold for a million dollars, you paid off a mortgage of 500, that leaves you 500 of cash, right? You go buy a property for a million dollars, you spend your 500 of cash, that means you will either come up with an additional $500,000 to make up the difference, or you'll take on new debt of $500,000, right? That's perfectly mm -hmm. permissible. Yeah. Um, what you don't wanna do is go from a million to, to 600, right? And then you're going to wind up with $400,000 of boot, regardless of you spend the cash or you take on, you know, relieve your debt either way. So um, equal or greater value, spend all the money, you'll fully defer your taxes. Pretty simple rule. You know, it's uh, you're a little bit more useful to remember that than get into all the machinations of, cal you know, calculating the debt, et cetera. Um, where was I? Uh, so, uh, so if you have cash left over, or you have not spent all of, you know, you went down in value, you can buy multiple properties. So you could buy two properties to make up your million dollars in my example, 500 each. Uh, if you know, let's say you decided you found a property that you really liked for, you know, $700,000 and you had 300 left over, well, you could do, you could invest in something passive like a Delaware statutory trust, okay? What a Delaware statutory trust is, there's a, you know, a, a sponsor who will basically buy an institutional grade property, like a shopping mall. It could be hospitality, uh, though maybe that's not the best sector right now. Retail, <laughs> retail. I don't know what is a good sector right now. Multifamily might be a good sector, right? Uh, you, you know, so you could get a DST or Delaware statutory trust in any of these sectors, a sponsor will buy the property and sell, basically they buy it in a land trust formed under Delaware law. And they sell off beneficial interest in the trust, typically the 1031 investors. So they are very, very useful because they are available, right? There's a menu of options out there that the various sponsors have in pretty much any property sector. 
so they're available. So you, it makes the 45 day identification relatively easy. Um, they also, as I said, they're a passive investment. So you don't have to worry about the three T's, the tenants, the trash, and the toilets. Somebody else is managing the property. Very good for retiring investors. Uh, number three, uh, the debt is provided in the, in the product. So you don't have to go apply for a loan. The loan is on the property. You're just assuming a portion of the debt. So it's an easy, you know, ask that way. Um, but the downside is you have to be an accredited investor to buy these properties. So it's not for everybody to be an accredited investor under securities law. You have to have a million dollars of assets net of your primary residence or you have to make $200,000 as a single person for the prior two years, or $300,000 as a married couple filing jointly and be on a track to continue to do so, which might be difficult during the pandemic, right? Then with, if you're anybody who's drawn a paycheck, you know, and paychecks are uh, a little bit marginal these days. Uh, so that could be tricky. And so you have to make sure that you um, abide by or, or fall within the accredited investor rules in order to you know, purchase them. But they are useful for many investors as an option, as either a gap filler where you have a shortage or as a backup where your property that you love might fall through and you want to have something to fall back on to complete your exchange. That's a great point. So moving forward into the multifamily space more specifically, because that's typically yeah. um, what we talk about on this podcast is syndication and multifamily. So most people don't think that you can actually 1031 into a syndication um, because they they assume that it's going to be into an LLC rather than into, you know, a property and there's going to be some issues there, but is that actually true? Is there a way to 1031 into a syndication? So the thought process here is that we're doing a swap, right? So we're talking about a real property for a real property. Typically in a syndication, what you're doing is you're not buying an interest in real property. You're buying an interest in the LLC that happens to own the property that, that happens to own percentage of the property. So the way that syndicators do this is what they're doing is a tenant common agreement, which is essentially allowing to, allowing to break up the property into parts and allowing the 1031 exchange uh, client to actually purchase direct interest in the property itself rather than the LLC. So you might have an LLC that will control say 95% of the property, right? And that would be uh, under the syndicate. And then they will allow for 5% of that property to come as a tenant in common agreement where the, uh, where the individual investor, the 1031 investor will be able to purchase direct interest in that property. Now there's reasons, <laughs> there's reasons why a syndicator would not want to do that. And, and Mike will go into those in a second, but let's just get kind of the conceptual idea of it is that if you're a 1031 investor, you are essentially purchasing interest directly, you're selling a property and you purchase interest directly in the property and therefore not in the LLC of the syndicator. Mike, did I do a good job there? Yeah, perfect. You know, and essentially, you know, if you think about what I just described as, as the Delaware statutory trust is kind of an institutional grade syndication in many ways. Okay. But typically to set up a DST structure, you know, might be cumbersome for your, you know, your smaller syndicator, you know, I'm talking about, you know, not multi-million dollar syndicator, you know, a smaller transaction. And so you typically will see something more along the lines of what Alex described, the tick transaction. So you might have, and we should back up and describe what a syndication is for, you know, well, very briefly, because I'm sure many of your uh, listeners understand the concept, but essentially you're talking about joint investment in real estate. And typically the way the structure is, you have a limited liability company that's going to own the property, 
you have a syndicator who is kind of the person to put the deal together. She might be a person who found the property. <clears throat> She's going to line up all the investors, bring them in, you know, pool their money together to buy this property. As the syndicator, she may contribute very little to or none of her own capital in the acquisition of the property. Yet she wants to be, rightfully so, for her sweat equity, wants to have an ownership interest in the property. Um, she wants the right to have return, <clears throat> excuse me, on the sale of the property. She wants a, the right to receive after a preferred return to her investors, a certain amount of the income. That is typically a partnership for tax purposes when you have that type of structure. To do a tick is very, very different. First of all, you cannot have joint ownership in one entity. It has to be ownership of the property, as Alex said. Okay, so each individual tick owner will own a deeded interest in the property. When you do that, though, some of those other things that we talked about, when you set up a true tick under the guidelines, or not really guidelines, but under Revenue Procedure 2002-22, um, some of the things like that preferred return to a syndicator who has no skin in the game doesn't really work for tax purposes. The IRS probably would not respect that. Also, the back-end return on the sale of the property. You can do things like management agreements and stuff like that, but and so you have to be very, very careful in the structure. So they have to have individual ownership of their interests, and typically the way it's done is you have one master LLC that's syndicated. That has all the non-1031 money. Okay, You could have several investors in there, and the syndicator, she can set up her arrangement as she normally would. The 1031 investor, though, has to be treated differently. He's going to come in, and he's going to uh, basically have an LLC. He'll be the sole member of that LLC that will buy, let's say it's a quarter of the property. They'll get a 25% interest. They'll put up 25% of the equity. They have to receive 25% of the profits. They have to have responsibility for 25% of the liabilities, okay, under those guidelines. And that creates kind of the, the, um, the um, conflict between the two concepts. Uh, but you do that, you can have a tick agreement that has that in place. The syndicator, though, can still manage the entire property and earn a management fee. That's perfectly acceptable. Should be in line with what the services actually being provided are, uh, but they can do that. Uh, you might, it's a little aggressive, the syndicator might be concerned about the management of that other entity, which might, might have some um, you know, veto power over selling the property and things like that. Well, maybe the syndicator can be the manager of that other entity. That's a little bit controversial, but we have seen people do that. Uh, and so that kind of protects it. But that's essentially how you do 1031 into a syndication, if that makes sense. And I know we had spoken before, you you had experience with this. That's essentially yeah. what you saw. Yeah, Kyle, tell yeah, us a little bit about your experience. What, what kind of machinations do you do? Yeah, so it was on a 107 unit deal and the TIC was more than last minute, uh, to say the least, yeah. which was very stressful. But we ended up doing the more controversial route, as you described it, which is being the manager of that actual TIC, um, just because of the control aspect. Like the, right. the main benefit of syndication is that, you know, there is a general partnership, which is usually managing and then a limited partnership with very little say, um, because to coordinate when to sell and how to sell and where to sell, um, it can be a little bit difficult if it's by committee. So we try to, you know, have as much control as we can in that situation. So that's kind of how we went about it. Yeah. And what, can I ask what state that property was in? Louisville, Kentucky. In Kentucky. Okay. Yeah. I mean, the, the, where you really worry about some of those things are the more aggressive states. I'm not so familiar with Kentucky. I've done some exchanges there, but I don't really know their state regime so well. 
but states like um, California is very, very aggressive in checking these transactions out. Uh, New York is somewhat aggressive. So, but yeah, and certainly if you're in a state with no income taxes, like a Florida or a Texas, you know, the IRS does not seem to be challenging them as much. That's not to say they couldn't, you know, but typically it's the states we worry about these days a little bit more than the IRS. Uh, and whether that management stick in the ownership bundle is too much is kind of remains to be seen. But I certainly understand it from the syndicator's point of view, that wanting that control. Of course. Any other questions? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Kyle, how much, the uh, question in, in terms of the amount that made it worthwhile if you go to do this deal, how big was the investment from the 1031 exchange uh, investor? It was a sig significant amount. So yeah. it was half a million dollars out of the, you know, a $4.55 million property. Okay. So it's a significant amount of the raise. We weren't going to accommodate um, other than that, it was last minute. We, you know, this has actually been a great learning experience where I take, I took some responsibility for it. The questionnaire that we had for passive investors did not ask the question of, uh, or did not ask good enough questions of where the money was coming from. And so we should have understood earlier that this was going to be through a 1031. So it, it ended up being kind of a hectic closing, but uh, yeah, so we, we basically had to accommodate because of the situation and the timing. Right. Yeah. You know, I was going to say, you know, you're talking about a little bit more than a 10% investment. You know, I would say that's probably depending on the scope, obviously, you know, you're not going to do this for somebody who's putting in 2% of the deal. Right. And 10% is probably maybe where the line is. I see it more commonly people, like I said, doing a quarter, you know, 50%, you know, you know typically the larger the investment, the more accommodating you can be as the syndicator. Awesome. Exactly. Well, Kyle, it's amazing, buddy. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. So the fall, the last kind of question that I have um, for you guys is a question I ask every guest, which is, what advice would you give to a 20-year-old entrepreneur or real estate professional? You want to take that, Alex? You're the entrepreneur. I was, I was specifically a real estate entrepreneur or general entrepreneur. Either or. Look, I'll tell you, my, I will say that my strategy initially was that I invested directly my process into my business initially, especially if you're 20 years old, right? Um, the, the chances of a small business surviving past five years is around 80%. So I think, you know, a person should be able to be aware of the strategy long-term of how to create multiple streams of income, right? And, and real estate is such a great option for that. But I definitely don't want people to rush Right. There's such a hunger to be quick and to be fast and be able to, to, uh, to really spread out. Uh, I think that the one proper, one thing you have direct control over is your own business. So my advice to the individual first is make sure that your own home is in, in order, right? you have enough runway, you have enough of a, of a fund set up in the cases as, uh, where an emergency might hit. And then once you have that set up, it's time to look for opportunities to, uh, to bring in other investors uh, in another investment. I would find that the other thing is I found that with my own experience is that once you establish success in your own business, it's much easier for you to uh, bring in uh, partners to invest in other projects, right? So once they see you've done well, they have, they have trust for you and then they can allow you basically to join together for other ventures like a real estate where they play a more passive role potentially. Mike, what do you think? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. I think that that's all good advice. You know, certainly I think the pandemic, the pandemic has laid bare the need to have reserves. Right. Um, well, I was going to go a different tack and say, I think, especially when you're 20 years old or something like that, you really want to invest in education. Okay. And that could be, that could take the form of degrees, could be college, could be, you know, 
whatever, what have you. But it could be something completely different. It could be, you know, taking courses in real estate and understanding the bare bones before you, you know, walk before you run. Understand what cap rate is, what cap rate compression is, you know, what you need to rent the property per door, you know, before you go and buy the property and kind of figure it out. Um, you know, understand the financials of the deal. Don't just rush into something. Be careful of the fix and flip model. I see a lot of people doing that. It's, you know, you can make lucrative money, you know, good money in a good market. In a bad market, you could get stuck with garbage. And, uh, you know, and the tax benefits of, are not there for fix and flip. You're going to pay ordinary income tax rates when you flip a property. So just be careful. Do your homework. Understand the market. Understand what happens in a down market. I think we're all about to get another education in what happens in the down market. But I think that's particularly important. That and preparation. You know, preparation and education go a long way. And, and make sure you have your parents have a basement where you can sleep, worst case scenario. <laughs> or a very a good tent. A very good tent. <laughs> yeah, either either one, basement or tent, they work. Yeah, man. I, I mean, those are such good advice. That's such good advice for for twenty year olds. And I find myself in a situation where you know, trying to reinvest back in the company, staying humble, uh, staying off Instagram. You know, because right. that lifestyle isn't isn't uh, conducive to long term <laughs> success. Let's just say that that to put it lightly. Um, and yeah, I mean, you want to you know have the lifestyle that's parallel to the amount of income you're making in a perfect world, but that income is has to be stabilized and you know, reinvesting back in and kind of, you know, I mean, Jeff Bezos, I think drove a Corolla when his company uh, made him a billionaire. So I think that the patience is key and I really appreciate your guys' advice. And uh, yeah, thank you so much for coming on the show and really adding a lot of value. It's a pleasure, my friend. And, yeah, and, uh, and we'll just say that, you know, if there's any agreements that any other future 1031 deals that might be coming away or reinvestment of your own properties, you want us to look through the contracts or give us some idea give some advice we're really here for you we work with a lot of syndicators just to give them a sense of a second pair of eyes even if it's not our own 1031 deal i've seen mike uh go out of his way to really help out because it's a small industry and it really comes around thank you man i appreciate that and where can people find you guys if they want to uh, get in contact about any of that yeah the best way to reach me is email mbrady at uh madison1031.com uh alex you want to give yours yeah, and uh, the best way is LinkedIn. I'm very active yeah. there. So, LinkedIn too. You know, just, just reach out to me and be more than happy to answer any questions. And again, uh, just let's, let's please stay in touch and, and we're there for you and continue to learn from you as well. Awesome. Thanks again, guys. Thank you for coming on the show. Pleasure, brother. Great. Thanks, Scott. This has been the Own Your Time podcast. Thank you guys for listening to the episode. If you're interested, we have a new program called Grit Coaching. There is limited space, but it is a one-on-one -on -one mentorship program where we teach you financial literacy, we teach you motivation, and we also teach you multifamily investing. So if that's something that you're interested in, then feel free to go to kylemarcott.com slash mentorship. And like you know, Mike said on this episode, invest in coaching. Investing in coaching is one of the best things you can do. Learn to walk before you run. That is a great quote from Mike, and I think that that really applies in this situation. So if that's something that you're interested in and you've stuck around on the podcast this long, um, then feel free to go to kylemarcott.com slash mentorship.